Welcome to the Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work. How being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Happiness Podcast, I'll be speaking with people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who have had career changes to entrepreneurs who have forged their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. In this episode of the Workplace Happiness uh, Podcast, it is my very, very great pleasure uh, to talk to Jacqueline de Rocas, who has been nominated to take this survey by uh, a few of um, the people who've done the podcast in the past. So um, I'm intrigued to talk to you about your life, and there are so many people who want to hear about what you've achieved in work. Um, and of course now uh, you're the chair of Tech UK. Tech UK is a huge organisation, 850 odd companies are part of it. Um, 700,000 people working in the tech sector, you represent almost half the workers. So you have a huge influence over tech. But if we start at the beginning, tech isn't where you started after your degree at Middlesex University. Uh, in economic business, you went into recruitment in Germany, or you were a recruit in Germany, is that right? Well, so it's, it's almost right. So I did my degree in Germany, and then I came back to the UK and I thought my ambition really was that I wanted to be a broadcaster on the BBC. And I thought, God, I, I would love to, I don't know, declare maybe peace or something like that on the news at 10. I thought that would be such a cool thing to do. I'd have been okay if we were declaring war equally, I think, but something of significance. And then they didn't come knocking, clearly. So I was offered by um, a friend in my network to become a recruiter in the technology industry. And it was actually in Kentish Town, but I'd just come back from Germany. So you were almost right. Oh, right. And so, and so, Recruitment. I mean, in the technology like, sector. In the technology sector. Mm -hmm. Did you like it? It's what really, was it like when you started? Well, I spent three hours every day opening letters with a letter opener, because of course we didn't have mobile phones, we didn't have any tech, we were you know snail mail, and life was gliding along rather nicely. The only thing I would say about recruitment is. Whilst it's full of people, and I love relationship building, but recruitment is about having a product that talks. <laughs> and when, it, when you are selling somebody into a business and then the product speaks for itself and has its own ideas, it makes life quite tricky. So after two years, I decided um, to go and work for my largest tech client. And, uh, and what did you do with them? Well, they wanted me because I spoke fluent German and uh, they wanted me because they couldn't understand their German clients. And so what role did you move into, Jacqueline? I was into a role called International Channel Manager. So I was running the German channel 
uh, for this UK tech business, which was flying a lot, was growing very, very quickly. And then I moved around from country to country, Scandinavia, um, Far East, uh, Southeast Asia, we call it now, it was Far East then. And um, it was a, a, an amazing time at the beginning of your career to have so much travel for a girl who had never traveled. It was an amazing opportunity. And so looking back over that first job and the second job, um, what are your memories now of working in recruitment? What, what did you learn there that's helped you going forward? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I learned how to read people. I learned how to ask questions. You know, in some, in early career, it's quite easy to trip over yourself and to, I call it, you know, you sort of show up and throw up about what you've got to offer. And it's such an easy thing to do, I think, when you're young. But in recruitment, it's all about them and about making sure that you get what they want and get that right and, and make that match, that perfect match, um, for them to have the career of their dreams. And so I think I learned quite a lot about other people, and that was a joy, that was an insight. And you, you made the point that you did recruitment in the tech industry. Mm. Is recruitment in the tech industry different to recruitment in any other industry? From a skills set perspective, specific skills were needed. So I suppose in one way it was, but it was always self-prescribed as to how good they were at this or that. So it was an experience um, perspective from their point of view. I think it was a bit different because tech people in those days weren't in abundance. Actually, I'm going to say they're not that much in abundance now because we do have a skill shortage. But in those days, we were working specifically on some technology, the System 38 for, for us of the sort of 57-ish age group um, was, was a, an important um, environment to recruit into, mainframe environments and we worked very closely with IBM at the time. And are the people that work in tech um, different? Do they have different characteristics? I mean, I think that you know, some people sitting this might have a picture in their mind of somebody who works in the tech sector. What, what would your take be of? Well, I'm, I'm gonna bust a myth, I think, because you know, the tech sector has a huge array of opportunities in it. So if you said to me, what jobs are there in the tech sector? There are as many, if not more, types of roles right from recruitment through to marketing through to analysis even an engineer in its purest form actually is a problem solver so I think we have to stop hiding behind three-letter acronyms which we often describe our industry with three-letter acronyms and start becoming more human with it because there are tons of jobs in this industry and I would invite anybody who's got any interest in this industry to, ha to have a look at it. Which are the hardest jobs in this industry to recruit for? Well, we recruit, I guess what I would say is we have to train people for jobs that don't yet exist because we are moving so fast. And that's both exciting and scary when you think about it. So really what we're recruiting for is people who can think disruptively, people who have got great soft skills in terms of collaboration, those problem-solving skills that I talked about before. 
You know, the genius in the room is the person that can see the real friction. And I'll give you a great example of this. When Tap and Go was put into the London Underground, before that, we had crowds and crowds of people trying to get down into you know, 200-year-old Victoriana infrastructure at commuter time. It was crazy. And you could be forgiven for saying, well, we need faster ticket machines or we need better queue management. But actually, the real genius is the person that said, well, wait a minute, how do we get through the barrier without breaking a stride? And that is where tap and go technology, which is actually not new technology, it's 16 years old, built by the banks. Tap and go, and off we go. We don't actually have to do anything else. It's so exciting. And that application of technology is not, it's not a technical solution. It's someone who just understands where the friction is. And I will just stretch that analogy to say, you know when we go into a pizza restaurant, let's say, and you order a pizza, that you get lots of attention from the waiter, waitresses, and then suddenly you want to go. Can you, for love nor money, get any attention? And when you do, you get given the bill, happy days, but the machine isn't coming. So you have to wait another 10 minutes for the machine to come. Now, the same technology, tap and go technology, can be used to say, I'm on table four, tap on table, tap on the table and go or on an app that you've downloaded. So, you know, there is an app called Flight which enables you to do that in some restaurants. And it's so exciting because the genius is the person that notices the friction that we live with every single day in a simple thing like eating, which we all do a lot of. So I'm very excited about the opportunity for people to come into our industry who can see problems worth solving and fix them. So do you think it was serendipitous, therefore, that you happened, as your very first job, to go into recruitment in the tech sector? Yeah, I, I totally believe that tech found me, and I am grateful every single day of my life because it's been a blast. So then moving on, as you were saying, to account management and travelling all over the world, um, what are your memories of doing that? What did you learn from doing that? There was a lot of partying, I seem to remember. Um, actually, though, it was about relationship building and learning about how to do business across multiple cultures. Being half Chinese myself, I think I already had some idea about communicating with other cultures. And so it became a real lesson for me to... and and a delight to be able to build relationships with people of other cultures, which before that were frankly stereotypical for me because I hadn't met, met people in international spaces before. So when you come from a background where you never think you're going to be able to do things like that, every, every day is a playground. And the, uh, did you find that any of those stereotypes were right? Were they universally wrong? Gosh, it's a sweeping generalisation to say a whole nation is like this, but do they eat a lot of sausages in Germany? Answer yes. Um, and so culturally? Culturally, though, you know, I think, I cer certainly believe that there are certain national characteristics. So I learnt a lot of my dedication to efficiency in process. I learnt a lot of that from my education in Germany, for sure. And that definitely is something that 
you know, they worship at the altar of in, 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 in that nation. And, and I love that. I, I've really benefited from being able to be the most efficient person wearing multiple hats and doing lots of jobs at once. And in the Far East? Yes, yeah, so the Far East, very different. Um, lots more time. It's clear. I'm even speaking slower, aren't I? The moment I go into my I'm in Tokyo mode, life is a bit slower. Plans are not quarterly. They are 100-year plans. And I love that. I think also that's a really interesting way to build a, a business, build a career, build a life. Aspirations are different. Different emphasis on respect. Different emphasis on hierarchy. So yes, it's, it's amazing and interesting. And from that phase of your life, all of that traveling, meeting different cultures, managing accounts, uh, getting on with people, what, what lessons did you take away from that? Well, I grew up in a very underprivileged background and I found myself in a very privileged space. But also, you know, taking from the background I came from, where I had a very violent father, a very violent Chinese father, actually, um, and being invisible for most of my childhood. Suddenly I was in a world where I was required to be quite visible, but I drew a lot of resilience from the strength I'd got as a child. I'd learned as a child to be very independent, to make sure that I stayed out of trouble, wasn't in the zone, and that stood me well actually when I went into the world of business because resilience is one of my big strengths I would say. The other side of resilience though there is perhaps the inability to ask for help and it took me a long time I think it wasn't until I crossed the chasm from management to leadership where I really learned that asking for help was the way that would enable me to scale. And did you find it easy to um, uh, express your views, to have your views heard? And by this, I, I want to start talking to you a little and getting your views on being a woman in tech mm. um, and where we are with that now and how you found it in those days. But how did, did you feel as a young woman in the tech industry traveling that uh, you were listened to? Was it hard work to get your views across? I didn't find it hard work, but I also worked hard at my ability to land my message. So I didn't find it hard. I'd also say that because of this resilience that I'd learned, I probably wasn't up for taking any flack. So I think those things were, were probably helping me and supporting me in that way. Now, having said that, I was, in my management days, probably a bit of an alpha zilla. So not, not always being my authentic self, but aligning with my alpha colleagues. And I think that's the path that many women take in male-dominated industries, is that you know, I certainly aligned with them and their behaviours. I was pretty scary to work for. Um, there are probably some people I need to apologise to from my younger self. And though I got to a place where I realised, and this, this happened in my career, where 
I was up for a promotion and I had tons of um, people working for me. I was uh, running a great big revenue stream, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And I was up against my competitor for this country role. And he had 10 people and 20 million of revenue. So nowhere close in terms of uh, capacity. And he got the job. And I asked for feedback. And I was told, well, Jacqueline, we simply don't put women on the leadership team. And I thought, wow, gosh, that's a big lesson. I did actually resign. Not in a fit of peak, actually. I just realised that sometimes there are some cultures that you can't change. And I think that's a, that's a really big lesson because I didn't want to become an angry feminist raging against the machine. I, that's not me anyway. I, I wanted to become the best version of myself. I wanted a culture that would nurture the best in me. And so I went to find myself a job and I found myself as the managing director of a company called Informix database business. And I've, I was behind a big desk, it had a bar in the corner, it had a boardroom in my room, it was ridiculously oversized. I had uh, an assistant outside that I didn't know what to do with. And I was suffering terribly from imposter syndrome. So, you know, at that point, you know, what do you do? You've got the job, someone must have thought, something you know seen something in me that was that was positive so I decided at that point that I would not offer any answers but all I would do as a leader was to ask questions and the reason I did that was because if I offered answers a I'd probably be wrong in this new business and B I was gonna run out of them pretty fast so I would ask really simple questions like, so what outcome are you shooting for in this meeting? And honestly, I can tell you, 70% of the time, people couldn't answer that question. And I would challenge even now whether all these meetings that everyone has back to back all day long, are they really serving you? And I think it is a big leadership lesson to go from answers to questions because it enables you to scale quickly. It enables you not to be the only voice in the room. It sets other people free. They get space to be amazing. And suddenly I found myself in a much more leadership type position than the manager that I was before. That's a survival tip, isn't it? Questions, not answers, I suppose. And so having been Alpha Zilla, as you called it, mm. In this new role, how would you describe yourself? So it's quite interesting because we were talking about women in tech before and what that was like. And I remember taking a uh, group of customers to the Grand Prix at Silverstone. And we decided to fly them in, A, because it's very exciting, and B, because we would miss the traffic. So I find myself in this helicopter, and one of my team says to a client, would you like to meet the managing director? And said I'd love to meet him and he turned around and he said god you're a woman and I said oh my god I didn't realize I needed a penis to make a decision but let's discuss it over lunch and it was such a funny moment and I you know it was in this we had a great lunch and this client was my client for 30 years 
with such joy, and he probably bought more software than he should have, but probably out of guilt, and I'm okay with that. But the point is, I think there, my lesson was that there's always going to be people who think things. I actually was glad he said it, because at least I knew what I was dealing with. And then my response, which used humour rather than anger or dismay, the humour piece just took it to a whole new level of opportunity. And how long ago was that, Jacqueline? So that was in early 2000s. So 20 years on, has Mm. it changed? Well, they don't say it to me anymore. (laughs) But I actually think, I do think that there is a lot more in terms of conversation, in terms of hiring. I think companies have got to a point where they realise that diversity is competitive advantage. You know, if you think about it, if an algorithm is going to decide whether you get a place at university, a job interview or a, you know, a loan, then if that algorithm is not written by diverse people, then we're going to create a world that doesn't work for everybody. And that's why I think the tech world is waking up to it quite quickly. Now, you extrapolate that. I was at um, a gym two weeks ago and, and a doctor couldn't get into the locker room. A swipe card wasn't working. So they changed out the swipe card a couple of times and then they brought the techies in to say why it wasn't working. Turns out that they'd hard-coded doctor as a male job title and that's why she couldn't get in. Now, think about what would have happened if pilot had been hard-coded as a male job title and in a crisis a female pilot couldn't override autopilot. Imagine the catastrophe that could ensue. And that's why in tech we have to make it a crisis and an emergency to think about the way we write and design technology because it really matters now. It's not just that diversity is a noble cause. It's not just that diverse teams make better decisions 87% of the time. It's not just that one woman on the board of a business can reduce the risk of bankruptcy by 20%. The most important thing is that who's writing the diversity is creating our digital future. And I'm passionate about that. And would you say that the tech industry is more misogynistic than most? I mean, you sit on the board of Costain, huge construction business, which I suppose many would think is male-dominated. Is, is tech an outlier, or, or do you think most are in the same sort of space now? Well, firstly, tech is in every business. So we have that thread going through every sector. Construction is quite male-dominated, but we spend a lot of our time. I had a, over a 100 young women in uh, a, an auditorium yesterday where we were inspiring them into engineering and technology roles on behalf of Costain. And so we spend a lot of time looking for diversity. You don't need to have muscles, you don't need to like engines, and you know you don't have to be a boy to be in tech or an engineer. And I think these are myths that we have to bust pretty fast. Um, quite apart from the fact we're gonna run out of talent if we don't do something about it quickly. I mean, let's face it, the borders are arguably closing. It's not as easy to get the right tech talent into the country as it was. And yet, most of our best tech companies have come 
through you know immigrants and innovation from outside of the country and we have to make sure that we look outwards not inwards on this stuff so and within the tech sector uh, what typically would be the percentage of women that 17 percent in tech 10 percent in cyber six percent in engineering and so where would you ideally like to see those numbers move to 50 percent thank you (laughs) <laughs> and how do you achieve that? Well, we've got to get them young. I mean, we're still walking into clothes shops where the blue T-shirt for the boys says genius and the, you know, the, the pink one, or yellow maybe, says make the world a prettier place. We programme our kids pretty young and it's not helping. So we've got to get to the parents, we've got to get to the influencers and that's why... I work a lot as an ambassador for tech for the Girl Guiding Association. We have 500,000 girl guides in this country, girl guides and brownies. And, you know, my view is if they can make a paper lantern, they can also learn how to stay safe online and they can learn a little bit of robotics and AI. And we have launched STEM badges, uh, science, technology, engineering, maths badges, alongside their their other um, badge earning opportunities so that they can start to get inspired into technology outside of school. School is where they have to go. Girl guiding is where they love to go and where they want to go. And and bear in mind, you know, the girl guides choose which badges they do. So it's very exciting that we've got that inside the girl guiding. The scouts do it too. So it's, it's a great opportunity to inspire the next generation. And looking back now at your younger self, in a management role. Oh, don't. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you wish you'd have done differently to make you a happier person at work yeah. and to make your team happier at work? I wish I had known that kindness and tolerance were as important as understanding how to make the numbers and understanding the product. You know, because I think those are those are skills actually behaviours, the kindness piece, just so important. It's not necessary to be, you know, the alphazilla. And what was your epiphany? Was it that um, not getting that role in the company that made you think I've got to view the world differently? I think it was, you know, because I realised I was always going to be kept at a certain level unless I looked at myself and thought, okay, the only person I can change is myself. So what am I going to do? And I did a huge amount of personal development, self-learning training, a lot of Tony Robbins, a lot of um, neuro-linguistic programming. I, I continuously learn, even now. I've, I did a, a course called Nonviolent Communication, which is the basis of all hostage negotiation. And I found myself on this 10-day course in France, and it was just so interesting. And the two things that came out of that was that in, an, in a scenario which could be a hostage situation or it could be a boardroom scenario, the two things that humans need when they're in conflict is, one is that they need to be heard and second is that they need to feel significant. And I wish I'd known that. So on that note, Jacqueline, what we're going to do now is the Workplace Happiness Survey. Thank you.
Right, so do you feel appropriately awarded for your work? Yes. I'm going to say... You get a 10 for that. Yeah. And have you always felt properly rewarded? Is Well, I don't count reward in just money terms, so I also count it in terms of have I contributed and do have I made a difference and does it make me happy in that sense so I would say yes I, I only do what I love so yes I feel rewarded and in terms of pay mm-hmm. much is written about the gender pay gap mm-hmm. um, I think it's 36% in the UK at the moment going looking back over your career have there been times when you felt that you weren't appropriately paid against a, a male colleague in the tech sector? Um, I haven't felt that, um, but I was very largely compensated on my results, and my results were usually Good. in the right place. Okay, question number two. Are you happy working with your hours? Yes, I work all the time and I love it. So how many hours a week do you work? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, I'm a portfolio non-exec, so I'm kind of always on. So I'm probably going to say something like 65, 75 hours a week, something like that. That's a lot of hours. Yeah. And, and for your team, the people that work for you? Yeah, no, they don't do that. But we do, you know what, people get the job done. And, you know, I believe that work is not a place, it's where you are. So there's no clocking in and clocking out. People just get their stuff done, and then if they don't want to do it during traditional work time, then they don't have to. I think that's perfectly acceptable. So if you're working for 65, 70 hours, how much time do you have for yourself and for your family? Yeah, well, I also take time off when I choose it too. So um, I've got a baby grandson called Harvey. And so when Harvey arrives, then we all down tools. And that's perfectly fine. I guess what I'm saying is I'm constantly organising, reorganising, fiddling with my stuff. Scheduling when you've got you know seven hats that you wear is probably my biggest thing. I would like a robot, actually, to maybe help me with that. Maybe I should look at my AI friends and I was going to say, if anybody can organise that, you can. I know, but I keep thinking I'm control freaks. I quite like to do it myself, I know. So you work a lot of hours, but you feel as though you're in control. I do, and you know, my husband, my third and final husband, is a yoga and meditation teacher, amongst other things. He's very creative. And so we meditate every morning together. And it feels like we elegantly glide through our days. I don't feel the pressure of always on. So you're scoring yourself a 10? I am. Do you feel recognised when you do something well? So I'm not great with recognition. I have quite low self-worth. So I always reframe any recognition that comes my way as an opportunity to fly the flag for diversity and inclusion for for the wider community. So um, do I feel recognised? I try to sort of look away when I'm being recognised. So you're... But that's not, I mean, that's not to say I'm not recognised. No, but I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by um, this characteristic that, that um, you feel uncomfortable being recognised. Mm. So do you know where that, where that started, what that goes back to? Because you also said you're a perfectionist. Mm. I think, so 
when my my mother divorced my Chinese father and remarried my stepfather, who was arguably worse, you know, he was a very uneducated man and he didn't want me to do particularly well. I remember getting my um, O-level results, GCSE results, and he snatched them out of my hand at age 16 and I'd got rather good results, A's and B's, and he said, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to show me up? So I think low self-worth was kind of programmed in quite young. And it wasn't until, I don't think I've ever got rid, I don't think I've ever dealt with that in, in, in any way other than to say, I'm doing this on behalf of someone else and this award is for everybody. So that's the way I reframe it, mm. positively. And, and, you, and you feel that's made you more resilient? I am resilient. And certainly I don't regret the experience because actually I do feel that resilience has served me very well. But as I said, it wasn't until I crossed the chasm to becoming a leader when I realised that actually I needed to ask for help. And so I, I have worked through the psychological side of that, but I'm not sure I'm ever going to feel very comfortable with people praising you. Yeah. And you, I can't even say the word, can you, I? Yeah. <laughs> and are you good at dishing it out, yes. praise? Yes. All and is time. that because you recognise it's important? You just well, at Christmas, I give the most gifts I can possibly give. And I, I, I hide all my gifts in the corner because I, I really find it hard to open them. Okay. So the difference in this question is, uh, are you recognised? Yes. Do you feel you are recognised? Yes. The fact that you don't like it is a different it's question. It's irrelevant. So okay. answer the question, Jacqueline. Yes, I feel recognised. Okay, jolly good. I'm going to give that a 10. Do you have enough information to do your job well? Well, if I don't, I'll go and find it. That's resilient, isn't it? Not always. So, but I mean, life is, is a cornucopia of opportunity these days. It's not like we have to go very far to find the information. This, I think, goes back to, if you ask enough questions, I think you can get to create the best possible outcome. It's when you dive off and stop to solve something that's not really the issue that it becomes a problem. So I would say my veracity, my curiosity uh, to ask questions probably means that I do always have enough information, probably more information than I need to do my job well. So we do the survey with 26 sectors. One, of course, is the tech sector, technology. Mm. and uh, people in the tech sector tend to score quite lowly on this. Hmm. That um, either they feel the world of tech is moving so quickly they need to be retrained and they don't have what they have, or they feel that they don't have enough information from their clients or their customers about what they need. Um, so what's interesting is that for you, you do feel that you can go and find the information you need to do your job well. I do, or I can find people who can who do know that information. Okay. I think it's all about networking and curiosity. Do you feel information is openly shared with you at work? I do. I'm hesitating here because I guess there will be times when it isn't and I may not know that. No knowns and unknown no, unknowns. No, yes. So probably I'd score that a little bit lower. So uh, this plays, as, as you 
picked out to a different thing. The, the last question about information is, do you have what you need to do your job effectively? This is about, does the organisation openly share information, which allows you to be more effective within the organisation? Yeah, and I think in, in my organisations, I do encourage openness. But what I would also say is, technology is sometimes quite scary. And if you take the example of robotics, people might think they might lose their jobs if we, you know, if we put all this robotics and process automation in. So is it in their interest to share information and make, make progress go faster? Not always. I understand that. So I probably would score this one a little bit lower. Okay. So I'm going to go seven. Do you have the resources you need to do your job well? Gosh, we could always do with more resources, couldn't we? So I would say the only thing that bugs me about this question actually is that if you are, if you had limitless resources, would you have a better outcome? I'm not sure that that's true. So I quite like working within a tight envelope because it forces you to make a decision. And I like the idea of making decisions under pressure. So I'm going to say... Do you have enough to do your job well? Yes. I'm going to put nine, though, because I just would always like a little bit more. Do you feel empowered to make decisions? Yeah, 100%. I do, actually. And have you always felt empowered to make decisions? Do you know what? I feel I would describe myself as being positively deviant. So... I'm not one for the rule book. But then, you know, my job in tech was always as a troubleshooter to make sure that companies were righted when they were in decline. And so I suppose I always had a little bit more space. And do you feel that deviants make the best managers? Positive deviants. And that is that you move the organisation without leaving dead bodies around you. I think that's quite important. But that, there is a skill there in terms of collaboration, diplomacy, making sure that everyone is going in the same direction. So I think it's positively deviant is... Good, good should be, should be a whole course, shouldn't there? should be a whole course on positive deviance. And so you often hear people say that when somebody comes in who's a positive deviant, the organisation has a, an organ rejection and, and they can't fit in. Mm. I mean, what, what would you say to that? How, how does an organisation embrace somebody who comes in and is positively deviant and says it, it could all change and it could all be better? And... Well, I think, so I go back to my point that the only person you can change is yourself and, and reframe everybody else. So I'm not sure there is, in my life, there isn't any failure. There's just success or learning. And so creating that sort of growth mindset where we are not people who know stuff we are people who learn stuff and I think if you if that's the only thing that you impart to an organization you for sure have created a trajectory which is different to the one that you started with and I honestly believe that even one antibody can make a difference okay was it the Dalai Lama who said if you think you're too small to make a difference try sleeping with a mosquito in the room <laughs> you'll soon know <laughs> do you feel trusted to make decisions yes have you ever not felt trusted no 
I don't believe I have. Um, but I am a double checker. So I, that's what happens when you're a control freak, you're a perfectionist and all the things that drive me crazy. But it is, you know, it's about, again, all of those questions that mean that you make sure you're solving the right question, make sure you're using the right resources, checking, double checking the journey throughout throughout the whole of the delivery process. And I think when you do that, there's a lot of trust. And if somebody did that to you, how would you feel? Double checking. Mm. Yeah, I'd probably be the most annoying person on the planet. <laughs> I get it. But I, I mean, I, I do also understand the footprint that I leave. So I wouldn't want you to think that I was that annoying person. But I, I am someone who understands alignment. I think when you come from a sales background, you understand how often you can ask questions. You don't have to check directly with someone, but you can constantly check your progress yourself. Go. Go nine. Nine. Do you feel your views are heard at work? So I believe that storytelling is a really important leadership skill. And when I say leadership skill, I think everyone in the organisation is responsible for the outcome of the business. And so for me, everyone's a leader. And storytelling is important for everyone to be able to land their message. Do I feel my views are heard at work? Absolutely. I've worked very hard in this area to be able to be a storyteller that matters. And you said earlier that throughout your career, your views have always been heard. Yes, exactly. Do you feel the organisation cares for your well-being? 100%. I do. And how does it do that? Well, so um, I think there are lots of people who offer mentoring who check in with me to make sure that I've got what I need, that we're going in the right direction, um, that I'm not working as long as I should be, uh, as, I, as I do. So, you know, there are lots of, lots of ways in which that manifests itself. And do you have a mentor? I do. I have more than one. And just tell us a bit about that. Could, I mean, without naming the people, but sort of similar backgrounds, similar age, different disciplines? Completely different disciplines. Um, very experienced mentors. I work for a mentoring business, so uh, we are required to have our own mentors and faculty once a month where we bring our staff. So we get to offload and unload pretty, pretty elegantly. And it's a joy. It's like having a warm bath every month. You can just let everything go. So, it's good. Okay. Another ten. Yeah. I rarely feel anxious at work. True, I don't. Okay. And have you ever? Yeah. So why don't you know and why did you? I think because as I've got older, I think I said it before, where failure is an opportunity to learn something. And I think when you have that mindset, that's a growth mindset. And that for me means that a lot of the anxiety dissipates because as long as you learn fast and you don't make the same mistake at the time, then I think the anxiety really doesn't <coughs> manifest itself anymore. Okay. 
So another 10. Another 10. Are you happy wor- with your working environment? Well, that's my handbag, and I love my handbag. So, yeah, sure. What's not to like about that? I think you know, this is actually a serious point, though, is that work is not a place. It's where you are, and I do honestly believe that it is a very different working environment than it used to be. I no longer worry about whether I've got an office I could be working in a coffee shop or on the train, so or in bed. And what's the good and the bad in that change? Discipline to stop. But I also have my third and final husband who says, right, if you want to keep me, you better stop. And and what about um the connections that you have with people? Because I can remember moving into the workplace from university in 82, seems like a lifetime ago. And the requirement was that everybody came in on a Monday and you all yeah. worked together and you all had lunch together and yeah. you all left at the same time and you all worked five days a week. Whereas we've now moved to this age where you said you could be working in a coffee shop or at home or on a plane or wherever. What do you think that's done to the dynamics of the workplace? Well, I think we do, do always have to find opportunities where we are collegiate and we come together so I think there is much more targeted team building social connection kind of moments but it isn't that it's a nine-to-five culture where you sit next to the same person and you know it's much more agile much more mobile than it was now I'm saying that that's the case in my world that may not be the case for everybody but I think we have to make specific provision for social connection otherwise we won't collaborate and innovate as easily as we did before on the other hand in tech for example you can find people working in um, shared spaces and they might be marketing directors from seven different companies now that never happened before but now that seven different thought processes you, you, you certainly create that one plus one equals eleven so in a way, you get connected differently. So is there a downside to mitigate? So you said more social events, more... So how, how do you, do, how do you think touch about points. that? Well, team building opportunities, getting together for conferences and meetings, sometimes in-person meetings. So, you know, rather than just transactional moments, I think there has to be relationship building moments that we have to build into work life to make sure that we get that balance. And do you think there's a societal issue? Isolation? Yes. I think, well, 6.4 hours per day average of screen time per person. It's pretty high. And that's, you know, that's the average. And I'm sure the younger generation spend more time than maybe you or I. And so... I think there is going to be an issue around isolation, and already is. I mean, there is a big emphasis on mental health, and that is something that I think we will see increase dramatically as our dependence on tech increases. So, without putting words in your mouth, you would say that we need to think carefully about the impact of tech on how people interact, isolation and mental health? Yes, for sure. For sure, and and actually from quite a young age too. I mean, I saw a, a cot that had been designed to put an iPad in the end of it, and you think, wow, okay, that's young, that's young. 
and scary. So what would your answer be? Well, I met someone today who his 13-year-old son um, doesn't, he has an iPhone 4, so he can't download anything of significance. So he can communicate a bit, but not much, and he's only allowed to have it for half an hour every day. And so I think there is some kind of parental influence, actually. I do fall back on my lovely Girl Guiding Association because I think get out there and do things with humans and encourage that sort of behaviour, I think, is a really good way to go. Okay. Do you feel happy at work? Yes. I do feel happy at work. Do you feel you do something worthwhile? I feel I do something worthwhile every moment of every day. I think you're going to have one of the highest scores we've ever had here. Oh my goodness. Well, because I'm a happy person. (laughs) Do you feel proud to work for your organisation? Yes, I do. All day long. That's another ten. Yeah. How likely are you to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? Well, that's difficult because my friends and family, either they're in the tech industry or other industries somewhere else. Um, tech UK is a trade organisation, trade body, so I'm not sure that it's for everybody. My kids, my daughter's an actor, so she wouldn't want to come here. I'm going to say probably five on this one. That's not because the organisation is terrible. No, it's because it's a it's a a particular requirement. Yes. Do you feel that you're treated with respect? Hundred percent. Always. 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 Even when you weren't offered a job because you're a woman. They were still they were still quite respectful. To be fair. Um, You know, it's really interesting. I I don't attach any negativity to that I attach the fact that it propelled me to go and find my own job as a as a managing director somewhere else reframing is a powerful thing (laughs) do you enjoy your job yes I enjoy my job I give that a 10 do you feel you have a good relationship with your line manager well I don't really have one no so it's myself so I have a good relationship with myself Yes, so the chairs of the boards, I have a good relationship with all of my chairs. I'm going to put 10 for that. Do you feel you're being developed? I develop myself. So yes, I do a big learning every year of some kind. And what's the big learning going to be this year? Well, I'm actually doing a clothes making course. This is my part for sustainability. So I'm doing a clothes making course this year, which is very exciting. And um, I'm also doing a pottery course as well. I know you? totally things that aren't actually to do with my um, cerebral self, but I, I do actually think it's quite nice to get away from a screen as well. What three changes would improve your workplace happiness? Ooh. Robot for scheduling. Um, what else would um, oh I'd like a time machine to have more hours even though you do 70 in my day yeah <laughs> uh, and what else uh, um, I'd like a, uh, a time uh, a transporter what do you call that time transporter so that that I could go from one place to another without commuter time it's all about time isn't it yes 
everything is about time. It's yeah. about how you fit in everything you want to. Yes. Your third and last husband, your meditation, yes. your seven roles, your time with Harvey. Yes. Well done for remembering. So how are you going to manage that in the future? Are you going to take more on? Are you going to take less on? I think that is a world-class question because in any boardroom, the world-class question is, what are you going to do less of? Because everyone's always talking about what you do more of. So I think that's a question I'm going to take away and develop myself with because actually... When I stepped down as president of Tech UK, I think my commitment to myself is not to fill it immediately and see what miracle comes my way. I'm sure there'll be lots of That'll offers. That'll be hard. <laughs> so now we're, we're filling in the, um, the grand demographic screen. So this is about you and it's about the job that you do. And we do this so that we can compare your happiness score with people who work in your sector who are like you. Yeah. So now we get your results. I'm going to be super happy, I know it. We know you are. So, uh, Jacqueline, 95%, <laughs> which I think is probably the highest score we've ever, ever had. Oh, wow. So what it shows you is that it also shows your industry and it shows global. So what's your industry scoring? 69%. Yeah, and what's global? 65%. So you are off the Richter. I am. In terms of your happiness. And then if you go to the... But your score is the highest we've ever had. Brilliant. What a privilege. No wonder people are saying they wanted you to take this <laughs> so, That's really um, funny. So to, to, to end, um, there are two questions, if I may. The first is, what song or piece of music makes you feel happiest when you hear it? This Girl is on Fire by Alicia Keys. Fantastic. And the, um, the last question is, who would you nominate or like to see take the Workplace Happiness Survey? Does it have to be male or female? It can be anybody in the world that you want. Oh, my goodness. So I'd love to see um, Dr. Sue Black. Yeah. Or Anne-Marie Maffedon, um, who's head of the STEMETS. Or the CEO of the Girl Guiding Association. Oh, but there's so Any many. Any of the above. So, uh, can I just end by, Jacqueline, thanking you very, very much for giving us some amazing insights into your life and into the tech sector. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.